Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before I get started with things, I just want to remind everyone that they can check out more about the podcast and donate a dollar or more per month to keep us afloat by going to patreon.com slash leftpoc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash leftpoc. And there you can find all of the podcast episodes as well as additional resources for upcoming episodes and older episodes, um, including readings and things like that. So definitely check it out. Um, Also, I just wanted to say, of course, that we are on social media, although not as broadly as I would like to be, so I'm working on that. But you can always find us on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms by just searching for Left POC. And with that, on with the show. For today's episode, I'll be speaking with Professor Cassie Ose. Cassie Ose is a historian of Latin America, the African diaspora, and gender and sexuality. Her expertise is in Brazilian history, specializing in Black history and race relations. Cassie's research historicizes Black women's perspectives on urban life and labor activism in 20th century Sao Paulo. She's developing a book project about modern notions of professionalism to Black women's labor in Brazil. Cassie is currently an assistant professor of history at Bucknell University and an all-around great person, so let us welcome her. Thanks so much for being here. All right. So first of all, before we get into any of the love is blind drama, I would love to talk to you about your research and your experiences in Brazil, if you're willing to share with us. Um, And especially because from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've done a lot of work on Black Brazil and particularly Black Sao Paulo, which is often, at least Sao Paulo as a city, sometimes in people's minds is sort of characterized as quote unquote white or European. Um, So I'd love to hear more about your work and also if you could connect some dots for us between your work and also just like your personal experiences while there. Yeah, well, first off, thank you for having me. Um, Let's see. Well, one, my work is about Black women's history in Sao Paulo. Um, I'm developing a book project around um, notions and aesthetics of Black women's professionalization or lack thereof and its relation to how they understand labor and their labor activism. So I am thinking about women's, Black women's class position um, from the working poor to those who are traditionally professionalized as white collar um, workers. Um, from the mid-20th century to the present. So that's what I'm working on right now. But my dissertation was actually about um, Black Sao Paulo and Black, like, Black-defined um, Black perspectives on their own social mobility in the city of Sao Paulo. There, as you know, Wendy, there's a huge literature and scholarship about, um, you know, this question, is it class? Is it race? When it comes to thinking about 
black inequality or racial inequality in Brazil. Um, the reason why black people tend to be poor um, in the mid 20th century, there were a bunch of classic studies, namely by Florestan Fernandes and the School of Sociology at the University of Sao Paulo investigating um, what relationship there was between slavery and Black people's position um, then in the contemporary period or the 1950s, 1960s. And those studies were relatively because they were able to acknowledge and admit that there was substantial um, racial discrimination in labor and education and social environments, which are also tied to labor and employment. Um, however, Florestan Fernandes, he had this vision of okay, well, Brazil is unevenly developed and that's because of its legacy of slavery. Brazil was the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery. And so he said, even though there's racial discrimination, the real problem is black people were not prepared for industrialized economy. And that's why they were doing so poorly in the city of Sao Paulo, which was one of the first, if not the most industrialized um, city and also the state of Sao Paulo. So it's like New York, New York. Um, it was the wealthiest and the most industrialized city and state in Brazil for the 20th century. And I think it continues to be to this day. Um, so he was saying, well, because of slavery, which was inherited and the, ne the negative effects of slavery were inherited and it's created like a negative effect on black families. And that's why they weren't prepared. But once Brazil is evenly developed, then black people will have a similar, um, a similar standard of living to white people or even different ethnic groups. So like the Japanese or the Syrian Lebanese and the Syrian Lebanese community is racialized as white in Brazil. Um, so a lot of Fernandes' conclusions have been critiqued, um, heavily critiqued. Um, Kim Butler's book critiques it heavily. Paulina Alberta's book um, critiques it heavily. Thomas Skidmore. Um, however, something that I thought was missing was that there was not a lot about what Black people thought about their social mobility, like what it means to be socially mobile, what it means to earn a living, are the conditions of the city even legitimate, right? Um, is the understanding of what it means to be developed legitimate and how do they understand it and then number two a lot of the sources that we rely on as historians of black brazil um whether it be in the united states or in brazil itself come from this um collection of sources called referred colloquially as the black press and sao paulo is a center for this 
historic black press, but most of the men who were writing in these black newspapers, well, most of the people who were writing in these black newspapers were men. So there aren't a lot of black women's voices and the men are of a certain pedigree. Some of them were self-taught, but they're literate. A lot of black people were not literate um, until the late 20th century um, because access to education was also classed. Um, also people had to support their families. So you often had children not going to school or finishing school because they had to participate and contribute to their families. So given that this was missing, I turned to oral history and oral history projects, ironically commemorating the abolition of slavery, the first centennial in 1988. And there were a bunch of researchers who were invested in the memory of slavery and Black families and there was such a collection for Sao Paulo. And what was fascinating about this collection is that a lot of the people, well, one, there were a lot of women, but two, virtually nobody was really talking about a memory of slavery. They were utilizing the interviews to talk about their lives and their experiences living in the state or in the city of Sao Paulo. And they had a lot of critiques about the way that transportation ran, the lack of accessibility to city services, um, the way that they were treated in other people's homes if they were working as domestic workers. Um, such a variety of things that we still talk about. So one example, again, transportation, um, I came across an interview where a woman was like, you know, it would just be better if either you have reduced fares for poor people or you just make transportation free, the busing system free. And these are conversations that activists, like urban activists of Sao Paulo have all the time. <laughs> or not, not just in Sao Paulo, but in Latin America overall, there's usually some type of um, strike or protest against the rise in transportation costs. So what we're seeing is that these women who are generally not formally educated or are dismissed because they don't fit the traditional um, understanding of what an intellectual is, is that they were intellectualizing their lives. They were theorizing um, the nation from their, from their own lives. And it was only in this circumstance that you could see it. Um, but we don't put Black women generally at the center, although I think some things are changing given um, Black women's leadership especially in um, uh, national politics, um, electoral politics, but they were already leading the way. And so that's what my dissertation was about. And in terms of how I got into Sao Paulo, um, I think that was an accident. 
when I first studied abroad in Brazil, I went to Bahia. I went to Salvador. Salvador has a, a large concentration of Black Brazilians. Um, it is known in the diaspora as the Black Mecca, especially because there's a lot of African, um, West African cultural um, aesthetics that are very vivid and very bold and alive there. The colonial history is very prominent. Um, but I think, I think one, Sao Paulo came to be because the archives were very, very well organized. I mean, in comparison to other parts of Brazil, um, the university archives have a very, they have these personal archives of Black activists, Black intellectuals. Um, I would say that despite a lot of issues of how Black memory is suppressed, um, generally in Sao Paulo, like the documentation and archives is very well organized. Um, I think the other thing, and we can get into this later, I don't know how your experiences have been, Wendy, in Brazil, but um, I was really used to being sexualized and harassed in Salvador and in Rio de Janeiro. When I was trying to work there, I would be solicited for sex by white men, foreign wow. um, or otherwise Brazilians. Um, and I don't know what the reason was. I mean, yes, I, where I was working in Sao Paulo, the center has less Black people. There are Black people, you do see them, but a lot of Black people live more in the outskirts or more in the, the different zones, right? So like on the edges of those zones. So you'll see Black people more the farther you travel from centro or the center of the city. But nobody was bothering me there, so I felt um, more comfortable. And that's not to say Sao Paulo isn't racist or, not, or it doesn't have misogynoir. It is. It has a very high rate of homicide by the police. There are a lot of massacres by the police there, again, in Black neighborhoods, right? Um, a lot of the prison massacres happened also in Sao Paulo. So it's like Jamie Alvish says in his research, you know, it's an anti-Black city. Um, but for some reason, I don't, it just aligned that I could work there safely. Um, and this is something if you read and listen to Black women who are scholars of Brazil, this question of sexual harassment and threat of sexual assault is very um, common. But I don't think beside beyond our circles, we actually talk about it. And, you know, my white colleagues don't really have to hear it, but I'm sharing this with y'all so you know 
the experience. And also at the time I was very young. I went into my PhD program when I was 23. I'm 30 now. So that also figures into some of my experiences. So a combination of that and then my advisor telling me one day, because I was really focused on the late 20th century, not really what I do now. And he was like, there are no women in your, or there are women in your research, but you don't ever talk about gender. And I was like, oh, I should. So altogether, my <laughs> research, my experiences, yeah. Yeah, that that last bit um, is really fascinating to me because, so I have, I have sort of a weird experience there, not weird in a bad way necessarily, but I started, the first time I went to Brazil ever was in 2004. And then I went again um, to visit a friend in Sao Paulo. This is before I was doing like, you know, I was an undergrad. So it was before I was doing deep research or anything. Uh, but we had gone for a, like a scholars group tour because I used to be really smart back in the day. Um <laughs> And like had like academic accolades. Um, but, you know, I, I went, we went to Rio de Janeiro and Salvador. So those are the two places that I went and I blended in. Like, I literally had people telling me like, oh, you look like my cousin. You look like my aunt, like whatever. Like there was a lot of like familial connection happening, um, which made me feel very much at home when I was in both places. Um, I didn't go to Sao Paulo until uh, 2007 to visit a friend. And then after that, pretty much I was going every single year uh, to do what suddenly, you know, soon became research as well as like just seeing friends and things. But in my experience, what's fascinating is there, maybe not fascinating, but interesting to me is that I never really dealt with that much sexual harassment, um, at, especially compared to New York. So like what usually would happen is, was in New York, and I'm originally from the South. So like for folks who are from the South, y'all know, like if you have one drop of Black blood, we know, we know our people, we recognize them as Black, like we call them Black, you know, there's very much like a, a sort of understanding of like, at least in the South, it's like we, we see and recognize and kind of understand Blackness as a very broad category, right? Um, but then in New York, what ended up happening a lot to me is like every day, depending on how I was wearing my hair or like what I was wearing in terms of clothes or what neighborhood I was in, I would be um, sort of understood, perceived by people in those places as potentially of either a different, not necessarily different racial background, but certainly a different ethnic background. So I wasn't understood as like a black American, I'd be seen as like Puerto Rican or Dominican or Brazilian or like whatever else. Um, and th sometimes the way people think of those categories in the US as is as if they are not black, right? Um, as if there's no like Afro-Latino like <laughs> reality. Um, and so sometimes what would happen is like, and especially me again at that time, when I was younger, coming from the South, I knew nothing about Afro-Latinidad. I knew nothing about like the African diaspora in Latin America. We just don't learn about it in the United States. You have to kind of, I mean, nowadays more so, but back then it was like, you had to really go out of your way to research that stuff, including in cities like New York, where a lot of Afro-Latino researchers were like pushed to the side and not recognized for their labor and work in the field. Um, and so, Long story short, you know, in, in New York, I was used to being put in these like Afro-Latino or Latino categories that surprised me and took me off guard. And then I had when I and people, again, were kind of seeing me as one of their own, even if I wasn't necessarily part of those 
ethnic cultures. So in Brazil, long story short, I kind of got ignored. Um, and I, in some ways that was nice because it was like, okay, I just blend, right? Like everyone thinks I'm, I'm part of their group. Like no one. And it's funny. Cause like some, I have some friends who are like um, of German descent in Sao Paulo. And whenever we would hang out, they would think like the waiters and stuff would think I was Brazilian and my friend was the tourist. And in actuality, it was the other way around. Right. So they would have, you know, I had these like funny racial moments and stuff, but for the most part, I was not harassed. And that was a positive because in New York, often I would get harassed precisely because sometimes black Americans would assume that I was Afro Latina. And so that was a strange, cause it was like, again, that you kind of, it's a mix of like, uh, first of all, just sexualization of Black women, but then add on to that this like hypersexualization of Latina women who are Black. So there was like, there were several layers going on in New York. Whereas when I went to Brazil, it was kind of like I had a break, which was strange, but nice, right? Um, and I didn't deal with street harassment in any city that I was in. Um, even when I'd go out to clubs and things like that, like people were fairly respectful of me. However, <laughs> It was whenever I did have sexual harassment, it was always like 99.9% of the time from American or European tourists who were white. And that became really frustrating because I was like, I'm literally from your country. Like, <laughs> and, and funny enough, I think if we were in the United States, you wouldn't say anything to me because you wouldn't assume that you had some sort of economic and social and like national power over my body by virtue of me as you assume being Afro-Latina. So there's a lot of like weird dynamics that are going on in this process, but you know, over time, just kind of looking back on it, it's definitely how I would um, characterize the situation. Whereas Brazilian people, like I said, most people just saw me as one of them. And I think based on like, the, especially the beauty standards in Brazil, which I don't want to, I'm not saying like there's, cause there's obviously a lot of stereotyping as well about Brazilian women and being like hyper feminine and things like that, but those pressures are real. So it's not to say that they're just doing it for fun. There are like pressures in terms of career, lifestyle, social acceptance, you know, your nails need to be done. Your cuticles need to be cut, your makeup, your eyebrows, especially need to be right. So like all my little uh, issues in the U.S. that I never really thought about when it came to my appearance, I started having to think about more in Brazil. But it was ironic because it was like, I'm not Brazilian, but if I'm being assumed to be Brazilian, I need to look up to the part because otherwise I'm going to be seen as like lazy or dirty or like not taking proper care of myself because my my cuticles are overgrown. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like things that I don't think about at home. So it it it's kind of like I was straddling two worlds, but not of my own volition, right? I wasn't trying to um, intentionally be understood as Brazilian or whatever. It was just that that was the circumstance that I was in and understanding that like, if I wanted people to treat me with some semblance of respect, if they're going to assume that I'm a black Brazilian, that I have to kind of fit in, in terms of the aesthetics as well. Um, so that was always fascinating for me, but I think in your case, especially cause like you have darker skin and there's like an even added layer of exotification of darker skin women and things like that. And um, of Af women who are clearly of African descent for, for the popular culture, you know, again, that's getting better. Um, I think I'm seeing more women who have dark brown skin in in media and things like that, but there's certainly, it's there's still a long way to go in multiple countries, but in Brazil as well. And so I think that just, again, kind of adds to the othering process, either sexually or otherwise, um, in your case versus mine, right? There's kind of um, two different 
like two different sets of experiences that can happen based on something as simple as not simple, but you know, as common, I guess, as skin color difference. Could I just interject for a second? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So something, well, one, your context, excellent, because it allows me to bring up, I'm from the Midwest. Um, I had never been sexually harassed in the Midwest. I mean, once when I started living in Chicago, but um, it wasn't my experience, but also because I think I had lived in predominantly white spaces. So I wasn't like the, I was not the valued, you know, whatever, which is funny now because as an adult, (laughs) wherever (laughs) I go, people are checking me out, which whatever. But um, yeah. Cassie's cute, by the way, just to like put things in perspective, Cassie's very cute. So anyone who's interested, I have her email. I'm just kidding. No, tell him I'm a hot girl. But um, <laughs> yeah, so being as young as I was going to Salvador, Rio de Janeiro, and also I not only am I clearly visibly of African descent, but my my parents are Ghanaian immigrants. So the other thing that people were picking up on is that I looked very, very quote unquote black, very African black, whatever that means. But in a place like Bahia or even in Rio de Janeiro, people were like, oh, she's Brazilian. As long as I didn't say anything, they thought I was Brazilian. And then, you know, depending on the person, they could either sexualize me as best or thought that they could threaten me with assault. Um, Because I wasn't seen as valuable. I wasn't a white woman. But um, when I was living in Sao Paulo, and when I did my, I had a Fulbright haze, which um, is a very prestigious award in the United States for research. I also had for the first time, I had a lot of money. um, Because for your audience, um, study abroad, for undergraduates um, is very classed. So um, when I first went to Brazil, the majority of people that I went to Brazil with, we went on a private program because my university didn't have a program for Brazil. Um, It was a private program. Most of the people who were in that program virtually all of them went to small liberal arts colleges or ivies. Um, There were only two of us who went to public schools and I was on a government fellowship, Um, but I had to fundraise money to go on top of that fellowship or scholarship because I would have been paying, I was paying more It costs more to be in Brazil than to be in the United States, whereas it was the exact opposite for my my colleagues who um, it was cheaper to be in Brazil than paying thirty, forty thousand dollars in tuition. So um, I was always broke (laughs) before my Fulbright haze. (laughs) And, you know, speaking to what Wendy said, you know, there's the expectation that you are like, like, 
you look like a woman, you're hyper feminine. And my first host mother, she always put a lot of pressure on me to look like a woman, Mulierelle, right? Mm -hmm. And Mulierelle, by the way, when they say Mulierelle, it means like, like a hot woman, like a Pamela Anderson or like a Nikki, like a Nicki Minaj or a Kim Kardashian. Like Mulierelle means like bombshell kind of, so. Yeah, and I was like 20, 21, 22 when I first went to Brazil. I wasn't, I wasn't that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, even to this day, I don't pluck or shape my eyebrows. Um, but yeah, so it just felt stifling. Um, and also Salvador, like lots of parts of Brazil, you know, even though it's majority black, the white elite run that shit. So, you know, I was, it felt like being on a plantation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And really, yeah. I mean, it, it, the, like I said, the gender norms are, they're changing, no doubt. And and one can argue, like, if some of the other countries I've been to, like, in Europe for research versus the United States even, right? Like, there are different levels yes. of expected femininity. When I go to Portugal, I don't even look at my nails or my eyebrows or really worry about that stuff. But then when I come back to the States, I kind of think about it. But then when I go to Brazil, it's like, that's all I think about. I'm, like, you know, scheduling beauty appointments and stuff that in the States I wouldn't necessarily worry about. Thankfully, that that kind of stuff, the aesthetic area in brazil as a field is less expensive than here in the u.s um even thinking about conversion rates and stuff like that held for the same is still a little bit cheaper in brazil than it is here um but also that has to do with like exploited labor practices right um a lot of the women in the the aesthetics and beauty fields are not earning that much money um and they don't get tips and things like that sometimes so that makes a difference too. Um, an unfair one, I would argue, but it's certainly the the price I should say to be upkept or to become a mulierno is a little bit cheaper than here. Plastic surgery is also a little bit cheaper than here in perspective, you know, based on your salaries. But middle, I guess I should say like plastic surgery is accessible for the lower middle middle class in Brazil in ways that it wouldn't be necessarily in the United States. Yes. And then um, the other thing that is fascinating about my experience, so I did say, yeah, I was sexually harassed by or threatened with sexual assault by white men, either Brazilian or foreign. Um, I've had the, the displeasure of being sexually harassed by even white Brazilian scholars. Um, but what was interesting, I became friends with um, a colleague who was working there and they are transmasculine and they are light-skinned. And so as the traditional, um, the traditional saying goes, is like, if you're lighter skin, if you can pass for pardo, then, which is like brown, but it's supposed to signify that you may be of African descent, but you're not, you don't look like me. You, you have looser curls. Um, you have more European features. Um, but, um, because they were visibly transmasculine, they were always being threatened with violence. It did not matter that their skin was light. It was your, you're debasing what you're 
gender is supposed to be. Um, whereas besides those um, instances in the academy when I would come across white Brazilian scholars who were sexualizing me and exotifying me, nobody bothered me on the street in Sao Paulo at all, even with what I looked like. And I think that was one because of class and my class performance because I had Fulbright Hayes money, right? Um, because I looked older, um, the way that I fashioned myself and also the credentials of, you know, the award and my passport. Definitely. And that's a good point as well. Like, you know, if I'm, if I'm there casually, um, I may be inclined to, at least back in the day, dress differently than if I'm going to a library or to an archive, right? Um, although I would say my casual is less feminine than my formal wear, you know, like when I'm doing like work wear, I fem it up big time. Um, but I think that there's, there's still a level of, as you said, understood classing that's going on. And when we say classing, we don't mean like, oh, this person is high class, like in the casual sense, we mean like literal class understanding and interpretation of your class level, if you're middle class, upper class, et cetera. And, you know, the other thing is, again, changing for the better, but the time when I was there doing again, just visiting friends and or also when I was doing more archival research back in the day, there was still a struggle, an ongoing struggle, although I would argue that it remains uh, to get more people of African descent in um, universities, because there was there's been, as you already mentioned, there's so much exclusion at the educational level on the basis of economic class and race that you end up having, you know, these even in a black city, the universities will be predominantly white, right? Um, in many cases, and again, changing by virtue of some legislation and, and programs around testing and better outreach to high school students and also um, public welfare programs so that students aren't having to leave high school and middle school to go work to support their families. So there are some differences that are in the right direction that are happening. Um, but that's certainly, you know, you you really start, I think you stand out especially as a black woman in academic settings, because we're often the very few that are there. I know I would go to an archive and I would be the only person of any tint of skin color, like in the room, except for the people who were cleaning it. You know, you would, the only people that I would see who looked like me were the staff members who were like working to, to restock some of the books in some cases or to clean the floors. And that, I think that stark difference you know, makes a difference in terms of how people treat you as well, based on what they perceive you to be in terms of your class level. Um, but going back just a tad, because I, like I said, your research itself was super fascinating to me. And I have lots of questions that I will probably also ask you off air, because it just is such an interesting topic. Um, I thought it was, you know, fascinating that you brought up uh, Florestan Fernandez, who in a lot of people, to give him a sort of parallel in the U.S., he would his work would be akin somewhat to like the Moynihan Report. For those of you who may be familiar with that in the U.S., where they talk about you know the black family and and gender roles and class and issues like that. Um, his work is, as you said, you know, primarily about slavery and its aftermath. But I remember even when I was reading it, um, I was like, this is great and interesting. But there were often throughout his work, like there were many many moments that were blatantly sexist or like almost anti-Black at times in ways that I think now we would look at and say, you know, that's a problem that can problematize the work. But at the time, I think there was sort of, a, at least in the 60s, 
and I would say early 70s too, some of his work was still sort of resonating for a lot of people. Um, there were some questions raised about, you know, is this really applicable? And, and I think a lot of people saw it as such, especially as well at with Brazil developing so much in the 60s, right? I mean, the 60s is like one of the, the heights, especially early 60s prior to the dictatorship starting in 64. It's the height of this like futuristic, you know, let's think about the future of Brazil. Let's think about Brazil as a nation and what it looks like. There's all these, there are all these like, you know, construction projects, Brasilia becomes the capital, right? So there's a lot of stuff happening in Brazil that is connecting with this idea of modernity. And Florestan Fernandes's work kind of calling back to slavery and thinking about the place even of the memory of slavery in that futuristic society, in the future that's in the city or the, the state, for example, or the country that's looking ahead, right? It almost felt like he was trying, he, and maybe I'm being too harsh on him, but I think he and some, some, <laughs> some scholars that were his contemporaries were trying to sort of more firmly put to bed that history of slavery so that they could move on into something more future leaning, right? Um, so I really, I think it's interesting to think about what does it mean for Black people who are visible reminders in a society of what happened in terms of colonialism and slavery, right? Where do they fit in? And Black women in particular in Brazil of all places because of sort of the myths around Black womanhood, but also this idea that's forwarded by other scholars about Black women being like the womb of the country, right? The sort of disembodied uh, reproductive device <laughs> for the most part for creating more Brazilians with a white male at the helm of that reproductive process and the woman's body being like a an oven, you know, or some sort of factory generating thing. So it's really interesting to think about where do Black women themselves fit into this idea of labor and reproduction of both labor and the nation in their own bodies. Um, as the nation kind of looks forward to the future. I, I have a question though specifically about um, when you talk about women's leadership um, and during and their discussion of slavery or like how that was kind of coming through the discussion that was meant to be exclusively about the memory of slavery in 88. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, how, what were some, what was some of the language around how women talked about labor? Because I know you mentioned a bit about, you know, transportation and access to labor, access to, to basic goods and things like that and services, but how did they fashion and discuss work um, and labor in their contributions as well as sort of balancing or maybe a, a complete lack of balance between the familial pressures or the pressures to have a family, the pressures to be super feminine, the pressures to, to be a good wife, um, and, and this idea of also being oftentimes perhaps the sole breadwinner in some cases, or the sole breadwinner for the, for the larger extended family. How do they talk about that kind of, those seemingly contradictory realms in their lives? That's a fantastic question. Um, and before I answer that, I want to go back to the Floristan Fernandes um, uh, discussion because I've worked in his archive for many years. It's housed up a university, uh, the Federal University of San Carlos and the interior of San Paulo State. Um, I've been working through his archive for many years, not only because of my research, but a lot of the materials related to that research that he did 
on um, slavery, its aftermath, and its relationship to industrialization in the Brazil of the 1950s and 60s. A lot of that material is handwritten, and it's hard <laughs> to read. <laughs> oh my god, don't get me started. It's so... And to, for those who don't know, Brazilian cursive is a little bit different from typical like U.S. American cursive. So that's what kind of makes it harder for those of us who do read cursive already. It makes it kind of harder to read for some folks. I know I have challenges with it. Yeah, but it's worth deciphering because you get to see what didn't go into the books for the scholarship that he wrote. And I came across this very fascinating interview that either he or one of his research associates did with this black guy um, who was part of like the black intelligentsia in Sao Paulo and he was saying you know I'm I'm upset that I have a daughter um, because what am I supposed to do with her like we want to be you know, what he would say is middle class, but how am I going to marry off my daughter? Like, I can't marry her to, no white guy is going to take her. <laughs> He's of like her equivalent class background. But if I have a boy, you know, he can marry a white woman, he can marry a black woman, but like, he's going to be fine with education, whatever. What It doesn't make any sense to educate my daughter because I can't give her to anybody, right? Um, so that I think that distinction is important because in the book that Fernandes publishes, there's a lot of material that is sexist. Um, there are a lot of um, assumptions about what it means to be a Black woman that is tying Black women's class status to being poor or working poor, despite the fact that a lot of the collaborators or the people for whom um, Fernandes is basing a lot of his interviews with are like Black women who are the wives of the men in the intelligentsia. Um, talking about what they perceive as um, the bad uh, the lack of respectability of poor and working class Black women, right? Um, so when you put that, you know, that judgmentalness and, you know, classism of these women against these interviews that I'm looking at, or even interviews that I carried out myself, there's a different story. They're codifying their labor experiences in relation well, one, it matters what generation they are. So if they were born in the early 20th century or even the mid 20th century, like before the 1950s, they are talking about, like, I had to do what I had to do to feed my family. Like some of them talked, there was this one woman who talked about how her father was incarcerated because he shot a white guy on a farm in Minas Gerais. <laughs> The reason why they were in Sao Paulo was because he was incarcerated in the federal penitentiary that used to be there. And so her mom had to put her in the house of somebody else and all of her kids 
and the houses of other people so they could work as domestic workers. And she was working as a domestic worker. And she, you know, did what she could um, to see her mother. Um, my friend, a friend of mine, the basis of their dissertation is actually about this case. Um, versus three generations down, her grand, her great granddaughter is talking about how she feels a type of way to her own mother because she's like, I wish she didn't work because I feel that I missed out on a lot of, you know, I didn't have a mom. And, you know, she's more lenient about um, me going to school, but I want to be a nurse. Like, I want to be somebody. Um, and she doesn't, she just wants to be a domestic worker. So there are like these nuances generationally that are working. Um, that's not like a hard and fast rule. There were others like there, I came across across an interview of a woman who was in the workers party in the 80s and she was very much like I'm being exploited in the ways that you would think right that are um easy to digest but there are other women who talk about their labor in terms of how um their their employers so whether they're domestic workers or whether they're working in a factory or, or they're street workers. They talk about their exploitation in terms of their the way that their clients are treating them, the way that their bosses are treating them, the lack of respect, um, the lack of um, if they're in a job that is um, protected by labor law, it's recognized as work, it's regulated work, um, the lack of advancement or even more prominently, the toll that the work is taking on their bodies and like this recurring theme of forced retirement. So back in the day in Brazil, if you um, got injured on the job, as opposed to paying you disability and like workplace insurance, because that's what you were owed as part of the labor law, um, your boss would try to force you into early retirement so they wouldn't have to pay you. Um, and there are accounts of Black people because they didn't have the resources to deal with their health problems dying early. So something that I tracked across these interviews is, and even some of the interviews that I conducted, a lot of these women's husbands die early. Um because of situations like that. And so they're living their lives as widows or they get married again, but um, workplace accidents and like the slow death from these accidents are very prominent. Um, but on the flip side, something that I focus on with domestic workers is in their activism, they were not allowed to unionize for much most of the 20th century. Um, I mean, I don't think, I always get the dates wrong, but it's either in 1988 or in 2013 that they're actually allowed to unionize unionize. 
Um, because in the original labor law, it said, well, their work isn't real work. It doesn't contribute to the economy. So they're not them and agricultural workers. They're not, they weren't um, entitled to any labor protections. Which you even see in like the New Deal in the United States, right? There's a lot of discussion about domestic, again, domestic workers and foreign workers being completely left out of the equation for reasons, question mark. Um, (laughs) We know the reasons, but yeah. Yeah. And um, so one thing I notice when you actually take that history seriously is that these women will say, my work is honorable and that's why I deserve labor rights. My work is work. It's honorable. I deserve to be seen as a professional. That is very radically different from how we're supposed to understand domestic work as an inheritance of slavery, as um, something that's archaic. Um, I don't remember what context it was But Lula had said something last year about base it in a way that echoes what Floristan Fernandes was thinking of. And I think what a lot of the white left in Brazil thinks is that, you know, everybody is supposed to phase into, you know, these type of either industrialized jobs or like white collar work. And that's the meaning of progress. And these black women as they're organizing, even though they're not allowed to have an actual union, they are creating these associations that are multiracial and class oriented across Brazil. And they're saying, no, you don't, you can't phase what I do out. The issue is not what I do. The issue is how I'm treated. Right? So that that brings a different perspective on what it means to work, what it means to contribute to the economy, but who gets to be seen as a professional, who doesn't get to be seen as a professional. My other friend, um, Taishi Santana Machado, she just released a new book called, um, it translates to A Foot in the Kitchen, which is a reference um, to something the former president, um, Fernando Enrique Cardoso said about him being, having African descent and him saying like, oh, I have a foot in the kitchen. He says he didn't say it, but, um, a couple of newspapers remarked that he did say it. Um, and it was very offensive because generally, white people who do have enslaved, or sorry, have African ancestry, it comes from the slave, um, this moment of slavery, and he comes from a very wealthy, prominent family in Brazil. So there's a question of potentially um, or likely sexual assault or rape that's being romanticized. But the book, my friend Thais's book is about Black women cooks, and how even though, going back to what you said, Wendy, that um, Black women are, their wombs, their hands, their breasts, like Pauline Alberto demonstrates this, right? Um, 
they are seen as contributing so much to Brazil, but it's seen as a gift, a selfless gift, and not like they deserve to be understood as the masters of their lives and that they what they have to contribute is important in their own right. Instead, it's whether it's Florestan Fernandes, who was on the left, or Gilbert Tafuri, right wing, um, uh, collaborated with the Portuguese um, fascist dictatorship, Salazar, um, apologist for Portuguese colonialism in Africa. Um, they're both imagining Black women as either extensions of Black men or, you know, the way that you have citizenship in Brazil is that you gave us this gift, but we don't have to take you seriously as intellectuals or people who lead in their own right. I really appreciate what you were saying just about reframing or how the women themselves reframed how they understood their work, right? Um, because one of the things that came up a lot um for some of the research that I had done about women at the beginning of the 20th century, so like first half of the 20th century, and almost exclusively, you know, like middle-class Black women, um, or, you know, primarily middle-class Black women who were then sometimes talking about their own mothers or, you know, women in the past who came before them, some of whom were even slaves, um, and their labor. One of the things that they were kind of, you know, like fighting for and you see this a lot in discussions of like women of color feminists versus white feminists at the turn of the century is that like, we just want to break. Like we can also contribute by not having to freaking work on our hands and knees all the time. Right. So it's like a, a different kind of reframing of, of feminism. It's like, we, we just want a right to not be forced to labor to such a degree um, that it is killing us, that it is, you know, potentially taking away from our time with our families and things like that. And especially because, if you're talking about right after slavery, a lot of these women have in the back of their minds this idea of being forced into that sort of labor, right, um, by either circumstance or literally um, through slavery. And so there are some questions as well about like how women at that time, or at least Black women at that time, were thinking about what it means to not labor. And it reminds me a lot of like, um, you know, contemporary discussions of like, I don't dream of labor. You may have seen that in social media and on YouTube and the like. And so many people who really took up that discussion, at least from what I noticed on YouTube, were black young women and black young women saying, there's this hustle culture that's killing us. There's all this stuff about black girl magic and black women will save the world and this and that. And we're kind of like, we just wanna be regular, regular people just like white women get to be, you know, and we want to just be, we want to just live our lives. And so it's always fascinating if you kind of look at the underside of these discussions and think about the ways that Black women are conceiving of these ideas that are pushed as like feminists or pro-labor or whatever, and what's missing from the discussion oftentimes when people don't talk to Black women about their understanding of, of what they're doing, laboring in formal ways or not, right? Um, I also know that, um, and you can add to this if you'd like, but there have been some attempts, I don't, I don't, so this is the issue, I don't, it's not my area, so I don't know if they've been actually formalized yet or not, but there was an attempt to make a union or at least a specific association for black maids or for maids, right? Um, I know maids, um, 
I can't remember the name of it, but they, they did create something in the, they were starting in the fifties and sixties and like continued on with it. And I think in the early two thousands, they did get some formal recognition for it, but I don't know of, as you said, like whether or not it is considered um, formally as we speak, a union, the same for women who are nannies who work as babas, right. Um, they're also often, um, basically excluded from unionization, excluded from worker benefits. And while the process of formalizing labor helps, so they have a thing called like a, they literally have like a worker card in Brazil, if you can imagine like a passport to work basically, that has to get signed by one's employer. And oftentimes women in these positions are working without that that carta asinada, as they call it, um, without a signed worker card. So I'm curious to know as well, like, if you happen to know what's going on with that in the present and if there have been, if there's been any work at all on, on um, how that kind of coincides with the, the revival of Lula as president, because I know he was fairly vocal about getting those women formal recognition, at least from what I know, from what I understand back in the day. So do you have, do you happen to know any updates on that or like what's, what's happening now? like post-2013, post-1988? So now you can unionize as a domestic worker. You're able to. Something that I'm aware of is that um, right now for organizers, the hard thing is getting domestic workers to know that they have that ability. Um, so raising consciousness that, hey, we are allowed to unionize now. These are your your rights, um, because a lot of people don't know. Um, in terms of what Lula's plans for um, domestic workers are right now, I'm not really certain. We know that during the Bolsonaro um, administration, they were very hostile to everybody, <laughs> but um, um, Paulo Gages, who was the minister, the economy minister, minister of the, I'm always, it's always hard to like translate certain phrases because he's like Ministerio da Fazenda. It's yeah, like, which in, if you directly translated, it, it means like the minister of the farm, which farm. doesn't make sense in English, but it has to do with like old understandings of plantation and economics and the like. Yeah. I would just say like economy minister or like finance minister. Yeah, finance, finance minister. So yeah. like he he famously said, you know, oh, we don't need to pay attention to these women or, you know, their rights because they're going to Disneyland, um, which is not actually the case. What is actually happening is that their employers are taking them to um, Orlando and Miami and forcing them to work and you know the US government um, is not tracking it or you know it's being done in a way that's clandestine. Um, of course Lula being pro-labor, pro-worker, I'm sure that he has something but I think now with um, Anieli Franco, who is the sister of the slain um, activist Marielle Franco, um, with her being in her position and, um, oh, what's his name? It starts with an H. He's in the 
Ministry of Human Rights that was just created. Oh, are you talking about this the the former professor Sergio or something? I think yes. But I think is it Sergio or something Silva? I'll I'll look it up and we'll fill it in. Yeah. Um, so don't worry about that. We both we're both having a memory gap. But for those of you who are interested, he actually has a YouTube channel and everything where he talks about these issues. Um, and comics too. Yeah, he's like a really he's a very well rounded figure. Just an interesting person overall. But we'll I'll make sure I put his actual name here so that people will know who we're talking about. But he's great. Yeah, but it seems to me that probably what will happen is figures like these people will forward their policy recommendations and he will try to formalize it into law. Of course, one of the issues that he will deal with is that a lot of the Congress is allied with Bolsonaro, not necessarily Bolsonaro himself, but the ethos of Bolso Bolsonaro pro-business, pro-agro, um, agro-business um, policies, right? Um, so he will encounter pushback from that, that angle, but Brazil is in a curious moment. Most of you are aware that um, there was an attack on the capital in Brasilia that aesthetically looks very similar to the January 6th siege of the capital, but is different given Brazil's context with the military dictatorship and a lot of the people who stormed the capital demanding that the military intervene. The military, um, there being some type of collaboration between some people in the military and the organizers who are linked to certain business interests, um, especially in the Amazon. Um, but it seems that the attack didn't have <laughs> the amount of support that the the protesters, or, or not the protesters, I mean, it is a form of treason to do that. But for the sake of this conversation, protesters thought it is publicly unpopular. So in that sense, Lula has, at least for now, kind of like a, on the surface, I don't think the Congress is going to push back severely on certain things that he wants right now. But of course, the Congress is, Planalto is always politicking 24-7. So I think legally there will be things that his opposition will do to hamstring a lot of his agenda. Um, yeah. So really quickly, I think we were both thinking about Silvio Almeida. Is that who you're thinking about? Yeah. So his name is Silvia Almeida. He has a, as I said, he has a YouTube channel. He's a, he was like very active and did a lot of talks on um, race issues, class issues, you know, like overlapping social issues and things like that. And he does a lot of historical deep dives and the like. So I really respect his sort of public history, outward facing um, academic work as well. But he is currently the, if I'm not mistaken, the Minister of Human Rights um, in Brazil. So I think that's who you're referring to, right? Is that? 
Yes. Okay. Um, so both of us had a had a memory gap during the call, but it's okay. Um, so all of that aside, right? Like not to, I, I literally could keep you here for three hours. I recognize that we've been talking for about an hour and 10 minutes-ish, but I tempted you here. I lured you here to talk about Love is Blind Brazil. And yes. I do want to transition to talking, just get a few minutes in about that because, um, but it, there is a connection between that and like your discussion of womanhood, your discussion of women in labor um, and some of the drama that's going on in this show that just wrapped up the other day. They had their um, reunion episode that came out on February 1st on Wednesday. So first of all, I just want to start by saying that I understand this is a pop culture discussion. However, you can't separate pop culture from politics and especially social issues. Um, and there's a lot of that that comes through in the show, which by the way, in Portuguese, oddly enough, is called uh, basically blind marriage. So it's more like marriage, the, the title in Portuguese, which is casamento às cegas, which means kind of like, it's like married at first sight, but because there's already a married at first sight show that exists, although I don't know if they have a Brazilian version, um, they ended up not, they don't call it in English uh, blind marriage, but it's odd because in the show they have a theme song where the woman says over and over, is love blind, is love blind, like love is blind. So the, the, the idea and the phrase exists in Portuguese in Brazil and even the contestants themselves are constantly like, amor e cego, da da da, is love blind, but they don't call it that. So I'm not sure <laughs> what happened, but, um, it, but it takes that, that kind of, that, even though the show is the same in terms of its format, calling it blind marriage means it has a slightly weightier set of consequences to me than saying love is blind. So that's just like how I want to open this. I'm curious to know what you thought of the show and sort of what were your what were some of your key takeaways, especially as they kind of overlap with what you've seen in your own academic work? Girl. <laughs> Um, what a whirlwind. Um, you have the figure of the Mulierel in Vanessa, who was supposed to be partnered with Chiago. She is the woman from Minas. Um, her family has this huge plantation, like farmland. Um, I think what is so fascinating about the show is even though it doesn't talk about class, you see class markers everywhere. And Chiago right? is unemployed, by the way. The guy yes, that like, he, she ends up it, partnering with doesn't have a job, to be clear. He doesn't have a job. <laughs> but <laughs> he has his apartment and everything. Um, like, he has... He... And this is very... Um, I mean, like, in the United States to an extent, but, like, white Brazilians who are middle class or grew up upper middle class, even if you don't have a job, you have certain things that allow you to live, right? And so even though he's unemployed, he, you know, he hasn't been kicked out of his apartment or anything. So he has some access to money. But I was so struck by when Vanessa was like, Oh, he lives in Zona Norte in Sao Paulo, the North Zone. Um, I couldn't ever live there. Um, and like the North Zone, for people who don't know, it is working class. Um, there are parts, especially like areas like Brasilangia, that are like mostly like Black people or people of like 
mixed African European descent. Um, there are a lot of Italian working class people up there. Um, it's a little less industrialized than the other zones, but she was just like, Oh, I, I couldn't live there. And I was like, girl, what? And she and hides it in this discussion of like, it's too mellow. Like she, the way she talks about it is like, it's kind of boring. I don't want to live. I need to live in a more active area, but you know what she's yeah, trying which, to say. Yeah. Which is funny <laughs> because we see where she comes from in Mina. So <laughs> she's like from backwards. a traditional family. And she's like, Oh, do you like farming? <laughs> um, so it was interesting seeing him, you know, this guy with no job, basically be like, no, I I, I don't want to marry you at the end. Um, Myra and Guillermo, that was interesting. She was a single, she's a single mom. Uh, I think she's an influencer he basically admitting towards the end he never really felt anything for her it was very weird um now let's get into the most important couples <laughs> <laughs> the black ones yeah um this was so fascinating and some parts it was like a treat because like they had these certain areas that were like Person. like there's this restaurant called like rap burger but like it's pronounced happy burger because um in portuguese the r is silent and um depending on what the letter is you emphasize that so it's like rap happy instead of like hap <laughs> right so yeah like, like the consonants on the well consonants and vowels on the ends of words get pronounced it's very like basically yeah. every letter you see gets pronounced in brazilian portuguese yes so that's why holbert he's not like robert or holbert it's holbert um <laughs> but i've been to that restaurant many times their burgers are really good um the Hodoji Samba, I think, um, for not Veronica. Yeah, Veronica's stepdad playing like Samba and stuff. Like it, the neighborhoods. It was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, okay, so there's Veronica, there's Tamara, and who's the other one who's with Holberti? Uh, Her name is Flavia. Flavia, there we go. This was so fascinating. Um. In the show notes or like the additional readings, I have a video um, featuring um, uh, Wendy's advisor, Barbara Weinstein, who talks about this very famous photo or illustration. And it's called The Redemption of Ham. Um, and so for those of you who don't know, um, white supremacists have this idea that like the reason why like ham in the bible he sees his father um noah naked and so his dad curses him and for white supremacists they're like oh the curse of ham is that he gave birth to like the black race or something um so this painting that is being referenced um, is basically like the redemption of Brazil. So you have like this very dark-skinned woman who clearly was like enslaved. She has this daughter who is like mixed race. 
Um, she gets with like this white guy who's like a recent Italian immigrant because among other things, not only does Brazil have the largest population of African descent outside of Nigeria, have the largest population of Italian descent outside of Italy, largest population of Japanese descent outside of Japan, so on and so forth. Um, so there were a lot of Italian immigrants who came to Brazil after abolition, preceding that for a couple of decades, but especially at the turn of the 20th century. Um, so he's there and then they have this like baby who is like white. And it has like all of this religious like imagery, like the dark skinned black mother, she's putting her hands to the sky in praise of Jesus. The baby is supposed to be Jesus. Like, um, and so subtly there's a lot of stuff going on between those three black women. So like Veronica and Will, of course, they're supposed to be set up as like the great black hope. Like here's black love in action. Like. Um, one of the things that's important to note in Brazil is that there is a tendency of like, and here in the United States, but I think sometimes it's overstated in the United States, but if you're going to be upwardly mobile as a Black man, you should get with like a white woman. And, um, you know, even the most fiercest, like, Black activists like Abgius Nascimento, like he was married, he's dead, but his widow is a white woman um, from the United States, who is a scholar in her own right. But like it has caused a lot of controversy amongst Black activist groups, not the marriage per se, but this tendency of like, oh, if you're upwardly mobile or even if you're radical, you're still going to get with a white woman so this discourse of like black women being rejected and so you have veronica who is fine she's, she's so really pretty sexy. and she's a model she's so actually a model hot. too yeah she's a model dark skin um buzz cut like she her mom like her last her mom's last name it showed up as mensa mensa is a ghanaian name mm. so like I don't know whether she's like of Ghanaian descent or not, but like clearly there's like, she's proud to be black. She's mm -hmm. proud to look like what she looks like, like that runs in her family. Um, she has um, two black parents, right? And she's with Will and it seems like they're going to get together. And then at the end, <laughs> it doesn't happen. And it, it like it's supposed to shock you whereas you have the other black couple Flavia and Holberti and Flavia she's lighter skin she has looser curls her mom I think is like either mixed or like white I couldn't tell but she looks like a typical Brazilian woman as is popularly imagined mm -hmm. and um there's like this you know back and forth between them but you think they're going to make it and they do make it but then at the reunion you see that they it didn't happen because he cheats well he attempts to cheat on her twice and he gets caught and then she breaks up with him which is ironic yeah. because well not ironic i guess hurt people hurt people right but his ex-girlfriend whom he almost married cheated on him 
with a woman yeah. actually like came out as as a lesbian I guess and then yeah. that becomes an issue on the show quite a bit as well which I thought was interesting not really something related to our discussion per se but Flavia reveals throughout these like drinking games that they do yes. as she kind of opens up throughout the process that she has had you know same-sex um, sexual attraction and experiences and so then it's kind of like it's not said but it's sort of this unspoken thing where like oh is Colbert going to be concerned that he's that Flavia is going to potentially cheat on him with a woman like his ex did. Um, so there's that kind of underlying like soft biphobia that's going on as well throughout uh, their relationship. But mm-hmm. yeah. 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 But there's that. And then there's Tamara and Allison, which I think is presented in a way that's supposed to um surprise us because they come from two completely different backgrounds like not only is Ali Sun like white but he's gaucho he's from the state of Hyogaranju de Sul which is I think behind Santa Catarina the whitest mm-hmm. um, state in Brazil and Tamara she's from Rio de Janeiro it's always interesting because they'll play like different type they'll play like funky carioca yes um, <laughs> whenever she appears and then they'll play like this country like gaucho like music whenever allison is there and you're always like on the edge like i was on the edge and they play it up in like the episode like previews because you're supposed to think oh their families are going to re- reject like hmm the partner because they're like white or they're black and it doesn't happen yeah (laughs) it doesn't happen and I don't know if it's like the show is trying to be like oh well Ali's son is like adopted and Tamara's like a, a lawyer like um an attorney so like they'll be able to to bridge the gap or whatever (laughs) and like yeah you see like um you know they have their differences like Allison is like very like funny and like kind of like a clown and Tamara's like very serious um and she's very assertive but um they're very hot for each other like they are sexually compatible but relationship-wise, they seem to be compatible even off air. Um, but still, it's it's what's striking to me is that this is the couple, the only couple that works out. And the two other Black couples, you know, this whole project about Black love, it fails. But it reinforces the popular notion of, you know what is going to provide Brazil's future is miscegenation and the black woman getting with the white man. And, you know, so it was interesting that a show that had been criticized for its lack of black representation, you know, still in some ways fulfills traditional scripts of how Brazilian race relations are supposed to go. Yes, absolutely. And there is, there's a lot going on just in relation to, so for those who may not have watched, none of this will make sense. So please, if you're going to, 
engage us in this conversation, go watch Love is Blind Brazil. I'm not trying to give Netflix more money as it like burns to the ground. But for this conversation to make sense, you have to watch the show. However, um, to give a little bit of background. So the the interesting thing about William is that, or so William is the one who's with Veronica, who is the, the black model. They're both, they're both dark-skinned Black people, especially by Brazilian standards. And what's interesting to me as well is that William's aesthetic is sort of like this Malcolm X kind of like Black, he literally, if you look at him, you'd be like, okay, this is what like contemporary Black activist male looks like. And it would be like his picture would be in the dictionary next to that. Right. Um, so he's got this, you know, like he's got like a high top fade. He's got these like small circle glasses. He's got a full beard that's sort of like pointy at the end. You know, It's very it, he just he looks like a like a black activist, you know, like he fits that mold. And then Veronica, who has, as I said, like she has a shaved head. She dyed it blonde and he goes on and on about her hair, which I also found interesting um, because she she wears her hair natural. It's not completely shaved like you can see the the, you know, the coils, but he, he mentions her hair multiple times. And at the beginning, he seems to say that, like. Like when they first meet one another, he's like, oh, yeah, she's like careca. Like she has the shaved head. She's badass. Like she's beautiful. But then in the reunion special, after they've, you know, broken up primarily because of the machinations of his mother, who ends up being overbearing and seemingly kind of forcing her son to not marry Veronica, um, he makes it as if it's like a negative, right? So he kind of has this moment where he's like, you know, I didn't want to, I said no to her at the altar because I didn't want to like marry this black woman, this bald black woman, and then suddenly say bye. Like after, I guess after he's, it seems like he's saying after the show wrapped up that they end up separating, right? And he was worried about what that would look like. Um, and there's all this, like, it's sort of a strange comment because even Veronica's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm good. You know, she's in a relationship now. She's not having, it doesn't seem like she's having any trouble getting guys. Um, but the kind of, the the way he puts it is as if I was worried about leaving this woman alone, you know, like leave, leaving this black bald woman to fend for herself in the relationship market, which was not an interesting comment. <laughs> Not only black bald woman, but like, so one, like she has like, she dyed her hair blonde and like yeah. there's a moment where they dye, dye his hair blonde. But like, that is also like a signifier of like class and mm-hmm. um where you come from regionally. So like a lot of people in the periphery or like in the favelas, like black boys will like um dye their natural hair like blonde or they'll even put like a perm in it but it's Mm -hmm. not to signify like oh I want to be white it's like like um countercultural it's like Mm -hmm. punk in a way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but um Will he also is like he doesn't just say like this black bald woman he says the word like Hechinta. So like uh-huh. very dark. Up, she's dark skin <laughs> mm-hmm. and like she looks like she's very black. And yeah, like he kept saying it over and over again. And I was he's not getting that like he already humiliated her on like national right. TV by saying, like, oh, I can't marry you. Um but um, I have some friends in Sao Paulo and in Rio de Janeiro, and they were telling me about how, like, um, 
will have like a a a past like there are black women who know him and they were like I wasn't surprised because <laughs> apparently he has a history of treating black women this way um so he's like on a black list no pun intended but um yeah I just I thought it was so I mean the show there were no like queer couples um there was not like you know non-monogamous couples and there's like a non-monogamous movement across like all racial groups in brazil um there are no trans people the i don't remember her name but like the plus-sized woman amanda gets cut like early like I mean, she she's not, we only see her at the end. There was an Asian woman, mm -hmm. probably of Japanese descent, who she is just there. We don't ever hear her talk. <laughs> she doesn't make it to any rounds. Like, you know, so it was it was very interesting. It was very interesting. I also found like your commentary on on the the painting and how it's sort of <laughs> reflected in the the Netflix special uh, or the the show is interesting because so Alison and Tamara, what's fascinating about Tamara, even though they cannot see her at the beginning, you know, love is blind right there in these pods. Tamara's short and black and has braids, and they're all they can't tell based on the way she speaks if she's black or not so like there's and and this is kind of a common thing in brazil like i think in the u.s we have a because of just like the way segregation worked and things like that usually if you close your eyes you can kind of tell um if someone is black or not not always of course but generally speaking the majority of cases you if you're a black person you could hear the blackness in someone's voice or even if you're a white person you can hear the blackness in someone's voice whereas in brazil it's not quite as clearly delineated but there are class giveaways, right? So you can tell sometimes based on their verb usage and stuff like that, where they're from, the slang that they use, et cetera, if they're poor or not. Um, also read, there's so much like regional division and dialect. And she has a very thick Carioca or Rio-based accent, which also brings along with it so many um, ideas of race too, right? So this idea of like the Carioca being this mixed race woman who looks a certain way and whatever, um, not to say that there aren't white cariocas, there are plenty of them, but just the assumptions that go into that. And so she is portrayed because she's so sociable and like really nice and people like her, the guys see her as a player and they sort of put, they get upset about it and are like angry. And there's a whole fight in the like first few episodes where the guys get upset because they're like kind of fighting over Tamara and they're like, I don't know if I can trust her. She's kind of a player, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, is she playing Allison a game with us? Sends her honor. Right. Which right. Is so fascinating. Yeah. Because technically in Brazil, in terms of its racial history, Black women have no honor. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. And he's defending this Black girl. <laughs> and again, we don't know, like, they don't know. So it's like the, you know, dramatic irony of it. We know she's Black, but Alison yeah. doesn't know, or at least to the best of my knowledge, doesn't know that she's Black. And the other male contestants don't know either. Yes. And then that moment where they see each other and you're like, oh my God, she's from Rio. He's from Rio Grande do Sul. And then they see each other and they run and they start like tonguing each other. Right, 
And you're like, uh, okay, good. Like <laughs> success. <laughs> I was scared though. I was scared as a, as a member of the audience, because basically I don't, there's not a good equivalent, but like saying someone's from Rio Grande do Sul is like saying, you know, I'm from Texas or from Alabama, but like white. Right. So if you're a woman from say Chicago and you're black, and then you're being paired with like a white guy from Alabama or, or like Texas, you might be a little bit nervous that you're going to be rejected on the basis of being a black woman. Again, this is not universally applicable, but I was scared as a viewer. I thought that there was going to be some, like to give you guys an idea, Rio Grande do Sul went like hard for Bolsonaro in the voting. So they always go like 70% like far right, you know? So I was worried. I was really worried about that as well, that they were just, he, he was going to reject her because of that. Yeah. Or his family. Yes, definitely. Um, but something that is so interesting to me is like she got on and her fan his family got on with her when she mm -hmm. went to go visit them. Right. But I think the show is trying to like give this underlying like there's something different about Allison because he was adopted. Mm. And so he has like he comes from a different pedigree than the traditional and this is something that I make a point in my teaching and my research is that generally when we talk about race we always invisibilize white men mm -hmm. we say that like there's just like they're set and good but like there's a there's a um an acculturation into what white masculinity is supposed to be in Brazil and that you're supposed to have this like, you know, your middle class or upper middle class, um, you're well-educated, you are the cordial man. So like, you are very nice, you appear nice, but when you need to pull the whip, you can do that. And, you know, they hold it against him. His colleagues hold it. Well, not colleagues. He's not at work. Although <laughs> I guess technically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they say that he is like macho and stuff because of the way that he's fiercely defending Tamara when they're fighting over her and calling her a player. Like when he's like, you need to cut your stuff off with your ex in order to be with me. But then you see the behavior of the other men and like, that is like white Brazilian masculinity in action is to be dismissive, mm -hmm. to be, um, you know, gaslighting of the woman that you're with, to blame her, um, to be distant, even though you're seeking like, you know, her body, you're seeking her labor in terms of cooking, cleaning. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, like, even though he is stereotypically he has some macho tendencies he's not patriarchal in the way that the rest of the men are right I also one thing I just want to add quickly is that I also kind of was rubbed the maybe it's just me and my bias on this front but I was rubbed the wrong way by Tamara's father constantly going on and on about how hot Alison is because again like we're talking about the Brazilian situation not an American like US American situation so in Brazil basically to like classify as good looking you just need to be like 
with white with blonde hair and blue eyes like that is like people the way people obsess there over blue eyes I've never heard the phrase all you so much in my life because I've, it's literally like it means whiteness like it stands it's a stand-in for whiteness when you say blue eyes um and so and I guess too just because it's a little bit more rare there right like I mean the it's an exotic thing to have blue eyes and blonde hair in a place like Brazil and so it's seen as the pinnacle of beauty and you could be busted, but as long as you have blonde hair and blue eyes, you're considered hot, you know? And so Allison is a good looking guy. He's not ugly by any means and any standards. I think he's a, but to me, I look at him and I'm like, I can go down the street and I see like white guys that look like that every day. Here, <laughs> like his, her, Tamara's mom, she also reinforces this because she's like, yeah. oh, they're going to have beautiful babies. And like, this yes. is very common. For like mixed race people like right. the fetishization of like their hypothetical children and you know mm -hmm. they're gonna have the loose curls if they're of african descent and this light skin and like they're gonna come out looking like beyonce and like that's not how genetics work right right but it reinforces again that painting mm -hmm. um you know like you're gradually going to get whiter. And that is what is ultimately desirable in Brazil. And especially with America and right. the U.S. And the U.S., yeah. And, and especially the Americas. <laughs> yeah. the Americas in general, yes. Especially with Tamara's obvious class ascension as well, right? Like her own career, it just kind of all wraps up into a bow. And she even makes some comments that I was like, huh? Because she says, for example, like, I'm, I'm guessing he's, German of German descent I'm guessing he's white uh I don't think she says white but she says he has a she kind of like implies he's from the south he has a German last name but then she goes oh but he's adopted so I don't know and so there's always this question mark for her on his end as well like is he going to be white and seems like she wants him to be white um which to yeah. me <laughs> says a lot about that not not that there's you know if, if that's what she's attracted to whatever but they're the political and like social implications there are really almost stereotypical to the point where I had myself like I had for myself thinking about you know if I were to retitle this show it would be like love is colorblind in in parentheses because there's this whole myth of like colorblind love and racial harmony in Brazil that sort of operates like uh the the American dream ideology here in the U.S. where if you anybody can make it no matter their race and you know we have everybody's mixed here and we all get along racially we don't have any racism here um and so in some ways there were aspects of the show that that brought forward very much this idea of the, the supposed racial democracy of Brazil but its failings as well and how it's actually not you know, it's obviously not a racial democracy if you're still prioritizing and upholding whiteness as the ideal, you know? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. So I really appreciate the time that you spent with me here. I, this is like such a fun, uh, anytime anyone wants to talk about Brazil with me, I'm down. But I especially appreciate that, you know, your work is so forward thinking and interesting and like brings forward these ideas that I think a lot of people are sleeping on. But on top of that, that you were able to connect it to such a silly show um, that, that, oh, one more thing, by the way, before yes. I leave you, we did, we only talked about Amanda for like two seconds. She was the plus size contestant. Yes. But one thing that no one I knew has mentioned and that I could not help think of is the fact that, so not only is Amanda plus size, but she is Tech, she identifies as a black woman. And if you look at her, she's like my color ish. I don't 
I in in Sao Paulo perhaps, but I know in other parts of the country she would not be considered black. She would be considered like mixed, um, which is a separate category technically in Brazil on the census. But I think for her, what was fascinating is the fact that like she also in several interviews, even though she talks often about her being a larger sized woman and how she was concerned, you know, she figured that she would be rejected and she was as a result of that. She also is a woman of color. She's a self-identified black woman and certainly not a white woman. And I thought it was fascinating because I kept finding myself wondering, you know, would the guy who rejected her, Paulo, would he have been interested in her had she been a white woman on top of that? It's kind of, it's an, un, it's a question mark I have, but I think that he, it seemed like he was not, I'm assuming that he was not just disappointed that she was fat, but also that she was non-white. And that's something that they don't really talk about on the show at all. She was kind of the stand-in for the fat community as a whole. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I thought that was interesting because I remember they were having some type of discussion right before she was going to be rejected. And she was like, yeah, I'm worried because like, it's not like I'm fat, I'm black. And, uh -huh. you know, and it just was not really acknowledged, but like the other black girls were like nodding their head. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like for me, yeah, she's black. Um, she looks a lot like Preta Gilles in terms of like her features and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, who also, I mean, her black, her name is literally black. Though. Right. Yeah. Her name so, is black. Yeah. Yeah. So like she also identifies as a black girl, but um yeah, I thought it was fascinating that the other thing that I'll say is like whether it was her or um, Myra or somebody else, but like in addition to like being a stand in for like either plus size women or like feminism, they all have this like, you know, I'm going to hold my head high and, you know, I'm going to be better off like they don't allow themselves to be humiliated mm -hmm. in their rejection even though they're on a reality tv show and i just i find that so fascinating yeah um because the men do make fools of themselves <laughs> <laughs> many times but the women are just like you know like the you know tomorrow will be another day i know that i'm hot i know that i'm fabulous like i don't have problems like getting men or whatever but mm -hmm. and this yeah. was the issue this is what I thought was interesting about the first season which I know we didn't get a chance to talk about but the first season also does a lot of that and much more the both Brazilian seasons are far more political very blatantly in my opinion than the one the than the U.S. version um the U.S. version doesn't have very much of any politics really inserted um I mean they have they have uh people on the show who are, you know, quote unquote, marginalized in terms of their community identity and whatever, but they don't really talk about it in the same ways that in Brazil, the Brazilian, when it almost feels like semi-didactic, you know, where they're like, I'm going to hit you over the head with like this question of feminism or this question of class or this question of race. Um, that at least for those of us who study Brazil, or even if you're Brazilian, you may pick up on right away that I think are kind of absent from uh, the U.S. one, which is a little bit more neutral. I would say the only thing that definitely does come up in the U.S. one um, 
is obviously race and region. Um, although they film most in the U.S. case, if I'm not mistaken, they film it and have the couples all be from the same area. Whereas in the Brazilian version, maybe because of just production costs and the like, they may be from different parts of the country and may live in those different parts of the country. But during the show, they're in Sao Paulo and they film in Sao Paulo and they live in Sao Paulo for the duration of those few months that they're together. So that may also make a difference in terms of like, like I guess the, the diversity question um, not being as, as clear and clearly laid out as, as the one in, in the US. Um, so did you have any final thoughts, things that you wanted to let us know that you're working on going forward, things that we should look out for, for you um, and how people can get in touch with you if they have questions about your work or your opinions on really cheesy, horrible uh, reality television on Netflix? <laughs> um, so I do have things in the work, but you know how academic production goes. It's <laughs> going to be under a paywall. However, um, whenever it's released, a year from now, two years from now, hit me up. I will email it to you for free. I'm working. I just submitted something that puts the work of Gail Jones, her recently released book, Paul Mari's in conversation with Black Brazilian feminist icons, Lelia Gonzalez and Beatriz Nascimento. Um, so that will come out probably end of this year, next year. I am working not only on my book project, but several articles about um, this question of Black women being seen as the gift of Brazil, but still being treated like shit. Um, so that's coming. I've done a couple of podcasts um, among the reading items provided for you. Um, I talk about my research in more depth and my work on Black Brazilian feminism on the podcast PhDivas. So you can listen to that. Um, if you want to email me, my um, faculty bio is on Twitter is on my Twitter profile. It's linked there. So my email is available there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Tropigalia. Um, on Instagram, I'm Brazilianista. Um, if you type in Tropigalia on Instagram, it will link you to my public IG because Tropigalia on IG is private. <laughs> it's for mutuals only. But um, yeah. So you can find me. Oh, and I have a blog. I need to update it. But um, if you want to, <laughs> yeah, if you want to read like my old entries about like my theories of the internet and like how web 2.0 and social media are like destroying the creativity of the internet that I grew up with, <laughs> um, tropigalia.net. But I'm hoping to write more about my teaching experience, teaching Latin America and Brazil, um, teaching about Black women, um, African diaspora, Afro-Latin America, all of the goodness of teaching in this really crazy um, wild west of pandemic and global fascism and 
climate catastrophe and, you know, being a young person, a young professional, <laughs> <laughs> while Black and queer uh, and all of these things. Yeah, you read my blog. That's it. I don't have anything to sell you. I have not, I'm not an influencer. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, I'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes. And as always, definitely check out the show notes. I have to like beat people over the head with it, but definitely check out the show notes. All of our shows have show notes, um, readings that you can follow up on, learn more from, and obviously ways to get in touch with our guests. So thank you so much again. I really appreciate you coming on Cassie and have a good one. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Just as a reminder, you can find us everywhere where you get your podcasts by searching simply for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can find us on social media through the same means. And you can also check us out, as always, on our Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash left POC. All of our content is free, but we happily accept donations so that we can keep the lights on or at least the virtual lights on. Um, And there you can donate a dollar or more, but everything is always free, as I said. So the podcast is free, the resources are free, the readings are free. Um, And just to plug something that's coming up, we're going to be doing a reading of... um, the Discourse on Colonialism by Aimé Césaire. So if you have not had a chance to check that out, the full book is on the Patreon page. You can download it or read it um, just by, you know, looking at the actual page. And then from there, um, you can at least get a feel for what we're going to be talking about. You can read the whole thing in full, or if you don't have the time, just skim it. It's fairly short. Um, So take a look at that and, uh, you know, in preparation for in anticipation of our discussion. And as always, you know, our discussions and any other podcast episodes will be around forever. So you can read it at your leisure and go back and listen to our discussion of it whenever you want. Um, But just putting it out there that that's what's in the pipeline coming up very soon. So again, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for your for your um, continued support. And for those of you who tweet at us or about us or tell a friend or family member about what we're doing over here, um, we really appreciate it. And another quick reminder, COVID is not over. I really want you all to protect yourselves and be safe, protect yourselves, your family, your friends, your colleagues. So please, 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 if you are indoors or in a crowded area outside within close contact of others, please make sure that you're wearing a really good mask. So that's a KF94, a KN95, or an N95 or better. Um, And if you have trouble accessing such masks, then you need to know what are the best types to buy, where can I find them at an an inexpensive price, but that they're so reputable, or also where can I perhaps find free masks. Please do not hesitate to contact me. Um, You can tweet me at leftpoc. You can always email us, um, and you can also send me a message just on my personal Twitter page, um, and that's at MuseWendy, M-U-S-E-W-E-N-D-I. I don't think I'm going to be doing any more mass distribution this year just because a lot is going on in my personal life um, and life in general. Uh, I'm going to be swamped. However, if it comes a time, if there comes a time when I have a little bit of free time and I can get back to it, I will certainly do that. Um, I just feel like it's so 
ridiculous that we're ending an emergency declaration that will throw millions of people off of Medicare and Medicaid. Um, millions of people will be without the free um, or low cost resources that they need to help them defend themselves and their families against this really deadly and dangerous virus. So yeah, I'm a little angry about that. Um, we'll talk more about that in a separate episode. I'd like to do a full episode uh, again, as we had done in the past on COVID and what's going on with that and how communities of color and leftist communities and people who are just in general concerned about this have been responding through non-governmental means. So a podcast episode for another time. But anyway, with all of that said, thank you all so much again. Take care of yourselves and thanks again. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Oi me levado, 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 me